Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. I'm John Vecchione, and I'm here with Mark Chenoweth. And um, we have a case I don't think we've talked too much about uh, thus far, but uh, it is it is Fredericks versus. But you've been spending a lot of time on it. But I've been <laughs> spending a lot of time. There's been a lot of of briefing, and this is this is Siggy, um, which is the Council of Inspector Generals, um, and it is a administrative body. I won't even call it an agency. It's a, it's a push me, pill, pull you kind of uh, uh, mashed together from all kinds of different places. A Frankenstein. A Frankenstein. And um, we represent clients who have been, since they uh, started, one, Joe Kafari is an IG for Homeland Security. And the inspector generals basically are the watchdogs over the agencies, and they make sure all the laws are being followed, and there's no skullduggery and this sort of thing. Ideally. Ideally. And um, ever since he got into the job, uh, Siggy has been investigating to him, and usually it's uh, – it seems to me anyway uh, because of something he's done that is totally within his ability to do, moving people around. But but the the thing is, um, uh, an appoint a non-appointee uh, had tried to take over uh, the IG's office basically, and uh, and I tried to uh, into and it's Exhibit One in our complaint. <laughs> he had to go out and get Wilmer Hale to look into what was going on because Siggy would not investigate this, which is uh, basically a a coup situation, I think, um, where someone set themselves up to be the acting IG. But but in any event. Well, yeah, and then Wilmer reported back and said, yeah, this looks pretty bad. It looks pretty bad. So you can all – I've attached it as Exhibit 1. It's redacted so that no names are there, and it's, and it's all within the law. But it's an incredible story. And ever since this happened, uh, it's one thing after another, and it's investigation and sitting for depositions one thing after another, sometimes – for, or, or one damn thing after another, right, like, like like Bill Barr's, Bill Barr's uh, auto, autobiography. So, um, in one case, in one case, Kafari uh, uh, who uh, edits a letter, he has to write to Congress about what's going on, and he edits a letter about uh, this incident. I won't go into it because it's not important, but he's then investigated for how he edited the letter to Congress. So. Obviously, it's his duty to write the letter. It's obvious Congress's duty to read it and see whether he's 
done anything right or wrong. And uh, they're in they're in constant communication with them. And Siggy's, oh, we're going to see if there was any there was anything um, recklessly uh, improper about you editing your letter. Meanwhile, back at the Legion of Doom, there are other <laughs> things that maybe they could actually be investigating that are happening in this administration that are more important than how he's editing a letter to Congress. All right. And so uh, we have here. So so what is the case about? Because obviously um, it isn't really about that. But uh, one thing is it shows the dysfunction of what's going on. And um, then Joe Gangloff. Well, just just the lack of proportionality. Correct. I mean, or, just it's insane. And so the complaint, the complaint really tells the tale of how much um, how many government hours have been taken away from the job of the IG of Homeland Security, which, as you know, has a lot of things on its plate. Uh, it has the border. Um, when he was before Congress, Kafar was asked to make sure that the border agents aren't um, you know, being over uh, uh, violating the law and their treatment of people along the border and also enforcing the laws to uh, down there. And as you know, uh, many people call it a crisis. And so he's he's addressing all these um, issues and uh, and and yet tons and tons of hours are being taken away. So but what's our complaint? Well, our complaint says that this organization, Siggy, is improperly organized. Um, the president can't fire anybody on Siggy's. Uh, you basically, you're an IG, and um, he does appoint the IGs, but in your capacity on Siggy, you're appointed by the head of Siggy, and then no one, then Siggy goes before Congress, and all of them did. It's not just the current guy. They all go before Congress and say, hey, we don't do anything to Siggy. We're, we're the inspector generals. We don't, we don't do any supervision of these people. We, we look away because that will keep them independent and all this. Well, that kind they of are a law unto themselves. They are a law unto themselves. So, um, so uh, what we've said is is that this is completely not the way an agency is supposed to be organized. There's nobody responsible, and um, the, and then the other thing that happens, which I think is just outrageous, because I've been DC a long time. I've never worked for the government, but I've seen this. Um, I've I've represented people in in a lot of different positions. Um, who are former government people. And I just realized you never worked for the government, John. <laughs> I now hold you in higher esteem than I did 30 <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> exactly. I've been here all these years and I've never worked for the federal government. I guess clerking is working for the federal government. Well, right? okay. So okay. Up in, yeah. But that wasn't here. That was we, in Newark. Yeah, so, we won't hold that against yeah, you. So, uh, so uh, the other fellow, I, I should mention, Joe Gangloff, he, he, left, he left this or he left uh, the Social Security Administration, something like two years ago, two and a half years ago, and they're investigating him for something or other. But the main thing is the statute says they only have jurisdiction over the people who are currently in in the organization. Right. So this um, is like continuing your 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 employment investigation on the fired employee. It's like they're gone. Yeah. But he but he wasn't fired. He retired. No, right. right exactly. Yeah. So he didn't, and he and with no inkling of this. And then two right. years later, he gets a notice. Hey, you have to sit for a for an interview with us yeah. and, and no i don't and, and well, <laughs> well the thing is then they're going to say all bad things about him right they issue these reports and give it to congress and say oh that guy's a bad guy so so in any event so but the, the even more than that so i've i've ex described the type of things that they're being investigated for well siggy starts out with a complete crazy made-up idea that they did this in their personal capacity so somehow Kafari got this whole uh, uh, Wilmer Hale report 
done in his personal capacity. He didn't he didn't have to go get funding for it or he could go through all the procedures and all the rest of it. He's just he it's it's more like his his tennis game, I guess. Um, and so what that does is, is that there is a statute uh, and a regulation that every time there's an investigation of a uh, employee in the federal government, the the uh, agency looks at it and see, sees if there's some sort of conflict bef- between it and the employee. So if he's stealing from the till, there'd be a conflict and they, they wouldn't do it. But if it's, I put out this report and I followed all the rules of the Justice Department to f- pull, pull out this report, well, your agency who wants to put out reports and doesn't want to be stopped in putting out reports will say, well, we'll represent you in the depositions and we think everything was done properly and our, our um, position and what are called equities, which means you're not out of pocket for a lawyer. Correct. If the agency's representing. That's you. true. But there's another thing here. How do you get the documents to defend yourself in your personal capacity? Can you get documents from the federal government to defend yourself? No, you cannot. So you have. And then the other thing is you have these personal lawyers. It's, I mean, if I represent someone personally, I'm not going to take any time to t- care what the heck happens to the Department of Homeland Security. I'm going to say if it'll, it'll help my client. And it's not false. I'm going to say anything, and 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 it's going to advance as long as it advances my client, and it's true. I'm going to go ahead and do it, but it might not be the best for both of them, just my client. So uh, I think that that's another thing here. The agencies could be weakened in what they're really allowed to do, and they and they'll have knowledge because they have the documents, and you don't have the documents, so you could be going off on a wild hair as a personal attorney. Well, and this isn't the usual course of action. The usual course of action is that the agency defends you. So they're doing something out of the ordinary here in order to try to put the the, right. the, the screws on it. So that, that's the other injury. They've, they're all out of pocket for these lawyers. So what has happened? So the government has come in with a motion to dismiss, and it's, and, uh, it's in the Eastern District of Virginia. And they have said, there's nothing to see here. We're perfectly well organized. Uh, it doesn't matter that uh, the head of the, the PBSIG... <laughs> Which is a private company. It's a it's a nonprofit private company. Uh, can ask for all the secret documents of the Department of Homeland Security. And John is talking about the public broadcasting system. Exactly, PBS. So, and there's Amtrak on there, and all these people are able to order these things around, investigate things they have no idea of, um, and they start out by saying it's all. And the government, so the government says you don't have any standing because you're not injured, and you're doing this in your personal capacity. So you can't complain about all the hours it takes from from uh, Homeland Security or your hours. Well, obviously, your hours are your hours because uh, a lot of this stuff is done after work and on weekends to respond to all this stuff. You can't do it uh, on your work. So um, I, I think that that and then plus the fact that, you know, your job is an important part of your life. And if it's being screwed up, a lot of your life is being screwed up. So. The government has now moved to dismiss, and we have opposed that motion to dismiss uh, along the grounds I've just told you that it's improperly ordered as an organization, and there are real injuries to our clients. But it's an important case. It's being watched, I believe, by the entire IG community. And the government, um, ha- they're, they're due with their reply brief, and then it'll all be before the judge. He says he's going to do it on the papers. But one of the reasons we call the Eastern District of Virginia the rocket docket is because they don't fool around. <laughs> they try not to sit on things. In fact, in, all my, in D.C., sometimes you're waiting for two years for an opinion. That doesn't happen over there. So we do hope that 
they'll come out, uh, that the judge will come out our way. And this case will move forward with discovery very shortly. Thanks. We'll be back in uh, a moment to discuss some of our other cases, but we'll tell you what happens in Siggy. John, we had our Chevron Palooza uh, last week uh, talking about uh, this upcoming Supreme Court case in Loper Bright v. Raimondo, and that was before the New Civil Liberties Alliance had filed our amicus brief in the case, which we did this past uh, Monday. And uh, so let's talk about the, the amicus brief. I think there is a core audience out there waiting to hear more from us about Chevron deference. So <laughs> we, we, we have to give our audience what they want, John. One, one has to think. <laughs> So uh, one of the things that, that is really meaningful to me about this amicus brief is that Chevron is something that NCLA has been focused on from day one, from really before I was even hired as the first employee here, Philip Hamburger uh, had, had written the Chevron bias article. He was known for making certain arguments about, about Chevron. And I think the reason why uh, all the clerks and justices up at the Supreme Court need to read uh, this amicus brief is because uh, it reflects a lot of Phillips, not just his thinking, but his actual prose and, and work here. He worked and, and a research. lot on this and research, worked a lot on this. John, you're the counsel of record uh, on this brief, and I worked on it too, but but we would both say that you know, this is this is Phillips' uh, brainchild. Right. And, uh, and it, it has uh, a lot of arguments in it that, frankly, you won't see elsewhere, but I thought, John, maybe we would start with a fun, a fun story yes. that folks might not see elsewhere. So this is interesting, and this shows what how important podcasts are because uh, I listened to this podcast that told us this little nugget that we didn't know. We've cited Coda in our briefs before, and if you Coda won the Oscar two two Oscars ago, yeah, and it's about it stands for Child of uh, Deaf Adults, yeah, Children of Deaf Adults, right? It has double meaning because she sings and and it's musical as well. So in any event, it's a song, but it's a it's a movie about fishermen who fish for herring in the same waters as our clients in the Relentless case or the Loper Bright people. Yeah, what are the odds? So so in any event, so it comes out just as we're doing all this all this Chevron stuff, and the, at the beginning of the brief on page two, uh, we, we put in that Encoda, which won Best Picture, and we explain it's about the Rossi family of deaf fishermen. And they protest the high cost of NOAA's regulation. That's what's going on here. That forced the fishermen to pay for at-sea monitors. And then there's there's a site from the movie um, where they are they are attacking the um, the observers and having to pay for them. And it, it's Gio Salgado, Fisheries Council head. It's John's job to look out for the fish, and as the head of council, it's my job to look out for you. The fishermen react, calling bullshit, Frank. Deaf patriarch of the Rossi fishing family, daughter Ruby, translating. We're tired of this shit, Gio. You don't care if these guys regulate us to death. No one's getting paid what their catch is worth. 
and yet they have to pay for this. So that goes in there. And then there's a footnote that we that we looked up afterwards to make sure it was true. Coda trivia, 30 facts about the Oscar-nominated movie. Um, and and the, one of the facts we put in here was one day they actually had to bring an observer with them, life imitating art from the movie, and they had to remove one of the crew members from the boat set since that could only have a maximum of 10 people on the boat. So an observer had to go with them while they're filming fishing. And uh, and, and so the observers were even interjected themselves into the movie set, which uh, I didn't know, but it's a nice little fact of how, how uh, deeply these regulations, and they had to pay them. <laughs> yeah, they had to pay them. And I just... Something tells me that that whoever that monitor was really wanted to see a movie being filmed, and they cared a lot more and paid a lot more attention to what was happening with the filming of the movie than they did to which fish were in the ocean that day. Uh, but you know, I don't know that for sure. But it's just it's just typical sort of government program when when they are able to uh, get stick their noses into other people's business. So, but then there are our legal arguments and. Um... I think that uh, yes, that's why people should really read the that is right. legal arguments. But exactly, exactly. We, we, we led with the dessert. Well, plus because there's so <laughs> many amicus, there's over 20 amicus briefs, and you gotta you, you want the clerks to wake up, right? So, that's right. So in any event, but but I think the first argument, Mark, and I'll let you discuss it though, is, um, and I think this is really um, Bill Hamburger's bit, is that how um, they're the the. The probity of the justices themselves is injured by Chevron. Their 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 role as judges is actually corrupted by it. Yeah, and this goes back to the to Phillips' 2008 book, Law and Judicial Duty, where he talks about the role of judges, the duty of judges, the office of judges is how they talked about it at the time of the founding, and that the there are certain things that come with the office of being a judge, and one of those things is exerting independence of judgment. And this was something that had been fought for in England before the colonies ever revolted. I mean, this is this was an important advancement in uh, in Anglo-American law that predates the Constitution. The, 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 the judges asserting their independence from the king, really, uh, in, in England, and saying that even the king is is subject uh, to the law. Uh, how far we've how far we've come just thinking about uh, what's what's happening in the United States today with uh, with, with our uh, current king. But um, uh, but the point of of talking about judicial office is that if a judge surrenders their judicial independence to another person or another entity, particularly an entity in the executive branch that is not an entity protected six ways from Sunday uh, by, you know, by, by judicial independence, the way that federal judges are protected by life tenure and, uh, rules against salary diminishment and rules against, uh, you know, they can't simultaneously serve as a judge and serve in the legislative branch and so forth. There's all these things in the constitution to protect independence of judgment. And yet if they turn over that judgment and defer instead under Chevron to an, an agency of the government, then you've lost the office of the judge. You've lost the independence that Article Three uh, promises, and that the whole creation of judges and including an independent judiciary in the Constitution what was meant to do. You've just scrapped all of that, and so that's the first reason that the brief gives, and one, frankly, that I don't see a lot of other people focus on. It, it needs to be front and center in the in the justices' consideration. And I'll just before you move on to Section Two, there's another thing we say there. It's very important which I think uh, it has, has shown fruit is that the states that get rid of Chevron 
we argue. Nothing bad has happened. They're, they're not lawless, you know, Wild West where, you know, to send Marshall Dillon in to solve all the problems that abandoning Chevron has caused. It's not that. And I'm the one usually making the Kansas references. But thank you. Thank you, John. <laughs> I appreciate that. But, uh, uh, you know, that's right. And, and you know, Wisconsin, Mississippi, Arizona, Florida, all these states have, have rejected Chevron. And by the way, California never had it at the state level. And so, uh, you know, I've never noticed California having a problem with regulating regulations, no. you know, so. Uh, we don't make that point in the brief, but we've made it, we've made it elsewhere. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, and, and, you know, there's a, a quote here saying that from the earliest days of our Republic, the court recognized uh, this reality, agreeing that the legislative power is confined to making the law and cannot interfere in the interpretation, which is the natural and exclusive province of the judicial branch of government. And that's a 1788 case, Republica v. Oswald. So it goes all the way back. And, um, uh, and so that's that's where the that's where the brief uh, starts. It also uh, you know, quotes Nathaniel Gorham from the 1787 Constitutional Convention, saying that the judges ought to carry into the exposition of the laws no prepossessions with regard to them. So no, they shouldn't bring any uh, any opinions about the law into the case. But of course, the agency is going to do that, and that's again why you can't be deferring uh, to to the agency. It has a pre-existing bias. And then did you want to talk about due process, John, and the, sort of the second point yeah. about judicial bias? That... Yeah. So the other thing we, we note is that Chevron um, denies due process because the, the person who's in a fight with the government is not getting the process due, meaning that the judge is by law, by, by this, this um, rubric, uh, has to um, rule against one of the parties because he has put his thumb on the scale for the other parties in the interpretation of the law. And, and so in the basic, what does the law mean? The judge is biased in favor of one party or the other. And that is a due process violation. Yeah, even though it's not a personal animus against right. the person, Correct. It's, a, it's more of a systemic bias. It's still a bias. It's still it's still putting a thumb on the scales, which an independent judge isn't supposed to do. And if the judge does that, as John just said, it's denying due process to the person who's, and it doesn't really matter whether you're suing the government or the government's suing you. If the government's getting deference, you're not getting due process. It's sort of uh, those, those are opposite sides of the same coin, I think. I think that's right. And then we have the third argument. Can, can I just oh, say one yeah, more, one more point about that, which is because uh, Philip does stress the fact that this also violates judicial canons of ethics. And so, uh, you know, if there were any other context where we saw judges systematically favoring one side or the other, I mean, if they said, well, we're going to favor the prosecution or, or, you know, whatever the case may be, people would go nuts about it and say, well, you can't do that. But for some reason, when it comes to the administrative state and saying that we're going to systematically favor agencies, that that's been OK for the last 40 years. Well, it's time for that. It's time for that to stop. And we need to recover the integrity uh, of the justices. And it's not just the justices. But they've been forcing, by the Chevron precedent, forcing all the lower court judges to surrender their integrity and their judicial independence by applying Chevron as well. So that's another problem that, that needs to end. We need to get back to uh, judicial ethics. And the next argument, Mark? The next argument uh, that we make uh, is uh, really talking about uh, or sort of responding to some of the reasons that people say, well, you know, you need to, deference is okay because we see that in some, you know, in some other uh, in some other places, uh, and uh, you know, and, and it's okay uh, when that happens. Uh, I think it would probably take a little too long to yeah. jump into that here. So I'm going to 
uh, you know, people well, should, should I th- read that. But Mark, I would say that since we just have a little time left, the real argument that I don't think that uh, everyone's going to make and why you have amicus is, is the last one that, that that the Supreme Court should confess error. <laughs> Right. If you're if you're the main, I don't I don't see that uh, the parties are the gonna parties ask for that. are not going to ask for that. But we both note, um, just as the parties did, that stare decisis really shouldn't even apply to a judicial rubric. It isn't it isn't something anyone can rely on because it's made the law so unstable. It changes by who's ever there. So there's really no stare decisis. But then the last argument is, hey, look, you should say you were wrong. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It says that, that you should say you were wrong and, and that you can't really recover the integrity and restore the faith in the judiciary unless you unless you do that. So uh, hopefully the court will. We'll, we'll see what happens. We look forward to oral argument in this case. Yeah, and the government's response.